Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. Today's show is a special sponsor insight, highlighting an example of the terrific research that comes out of PitchBook. My guest is Wiley Fernio. PitchBook's lead private equity analyst, where he produces industry research and dives deep on thematic areas of interest. Our conversation covers his research on the business of buying stakes in asset managers. We discuss its history, rationale, and perspectives from each side of the table involved in these transactions, the stake buyer, the manager who sells a stake in their business, and investors in the manager's funds. We also touch on the seating business, private equity investments in sports franchises, and publicly listed alternative managers. We're grateful to PitchBook for their sponsorship of Private Equity Masters and eager to highlight the great work they do. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we're enrolling the first cohort of Capital Allocators University, a live online course that starts on September 21st. Rahul Mudgal and I put together a course to help train investment professionals on the skills they need to succeed at the most senior levels of their organizations, but that aren't typically taught in investment curriculum. We'll be joined by an all-star cast of past guests on the show to help you learn foundational skills like time management and public speaking, and value-added ones like decision-making and networking. Hop on the website and click University in the menu to learn more. Please enjoy my conversation with Wiley Fernio. Wiley, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ted. Excited to be here. Why don't you take me through your background and how you got to the seat you're occupying today studying private equity? Happy to do so. So back in college, was studying business. And I think like a lot of people, 
didn't exactly know where I wanted to be. So I was an accounting major, a marketing major, just hopped through a lot of things. And there was an investment program at the school that allowed us to invest part of the endowment. And it was a pretty small amount of money, but we got to do active stock selection. And it really showed me the interest in investing that I have today. And so after that, changed my major to finance and then ended up going to an RIA out of school, working as a research analyst, then portfolio manager. It was a pretty interesting role. Was there for a few years and then saw that that business was about to be acquired and my seat was going to be gone. So made the proactive jump to do something else. And I'd love to say that there was this great moment of enlightenment that I needed to study private markets. But it was really more of I want to stay in Seattle and work in something finance or finance related and just jumped on LinkedIn, found PitchBook, applied and said, I know something about private equity. I was a finance major. I'm studying for the CFA. I got this. Got in here and worked up. And now I lead the private equity team covering the US. So a modern version of a job transition, LinkedIn. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So in that big world of leading this team, where have you been focusing your time? So the most of my time has been focused really on looking at GP stakes and then the publicly traded private equity firms. So think Blue Owl, Blackstone, the big names. So let's dive right into the stakes business. You see more and more, certainly private equity firms. Where did this all start? So to really look at the history of stakes, you have to go back a good 30 plus years to when Blackstone sold a minority stake to Nico Securities in 1988. And this was just after their first fund was launched and they sold a 20% stake at about a $500 million valuation. Blackstone used that money to expand their offerings and really turbocharge their growth. You saw about a decade later, AIG bought a stake in Blackstone. And following that, we saw CalPERS and some sovereign wealth funds buy stakes in Apollo, Silver Lake, Carlisle in that 2006 to 08 timeframe. And all of those were strategic deals done by large asset owners. So sponsors kind of come in later. And so we really saw Petersill and Dial come in in the 2011 to 12 timeframe. And they invested mostly in hedge funds, especially in that first round of funds that were raised. And they realized kind of that wasn't the best business model to be investing in. So the next generation of funds where we had Dial and Petersil come to market with funds too, and and Blackstone came in in that 2013 to 14 timeframe, they were more hybrid. So there were some hedge funds, some private capital. And then from 2015 on, it was really fully in private capital firms. And so these sponsors really have been covering the top end and I would say the Vista investment really was kind of the the game changer there. But beyond some of those firms, we've seen some of the more defining investments in Silver Lake, Primera, BC Partners, HIG, Golub, on and on and on. And I would say one of the things that's happened more recently is now that we have kind of a established middle market. And so there are kind of two players really in there that that stand out. Bonaccord and Azimut Alternative Capital Partners. And so we've then seen some expansion into the, the smaller end as well. And so now there's a mix of strategics, of sponsors, of, of kind of hybrids along the spectrum. Some of these are, are using funds, some of them are balance sheet. And so it's, it's a really complex area today as compared to what it was when it really first started. And what's your sense of why it all started? I think in general, it was that strategic element of there were a lot of large, we'll say institutions that were looking to have a closer relationship. And so 
whether it was a large pension looking to get a better allocation and just economic relationship with, let's say, Apollo, for instance. And I think that was really the main driver is a lot of these institutions saw the amount of capital they were committing, wanted a closer relationship, and maybe to share in some of the economics that they were helping to create. So let's fast forward to today. There's a lot of interesting dynamics on the manager side, on the client side, on the investor in funds that are doing this, and maybe we'll tackle them one by one. So you started with the investors or some large investors wanting to have a deeper interest in the fund manager. I guess somewhere along the way, that became a good business because now we have funds like Dial and others. What does this business look like from an investor's perspective in, say, a a stake of an asset manager? Yeah, so it's a bottom line stake. It's a minority equity stake in these managers. And so you're getting a piece of the profits, which is really derived mainly from two parts, but also a small chunk of the balance sheet investment, which effectively is a slice of the carried interest that the manager makes and management fees. And as that has played out over a bunch of different deals, what does that risk return profile look like? So the risk return profile, I would say, is certainly interesting. I would argue that it is quite compelling. In terms of risks, there's really three or four. One of them is going to be overpayment. And with overpayments, sometimes returns can lag pretty substantially. And I think we saw one or two examples of that. I won't name names, but especially going into the IPOs of the mid to late 2000s of some of these large firms. I would say another thing is looking at the trends of where private capital is going. So I think there have been a number of deals, let's say in the energy space, that were priced pretty fully when they were done. And then looking back at that now, maybe haven't worked out quite as well. And so I I think it's really important to understand where the industry is going and, and invest ahead of that. Another risk I would say is looking at personnel issues. One reason why the stakes business has moved away from hedge funds is that in hedge funds, it's typically a one-man show. And so there's a little bit less risk in some of these private capital firms that are able to build up these large businesses in which you're not fully dependent on one person. And so there's been at least one semi-high-profile case of that semi-recently where a firm backed a hedge fund and then the two managers have now split. And so there are also words and legal ways to help the investor in that case. In general, those are some of the risks I think to look out for. On the return side, I think you really have to look at the three different spectrums. There's the top end, there's the mid-market, which I think is kind of the sweet spot in the risk return spectrum, and then there's the smaller end. So at least on the top end, you're looking at somewhere around 15 to 20% gross IRRs, which is pretty decent considering you're looking at investing in a firm like BC Partners or HIG, you know, really large established managers. And, and the risk there just isn't maybe all that much. When you look more at the mid-market, you're looking at 20 to 25% gross IRRs. And again, I think that's kind of the sweet spot because you're getting paid a decent amount more, especially on the cash flow yield side with the lower pricing. But there's also more growth potential. It's easier to take a $2 billion growth fund to three and a half billion and then five billion a couple funds on rather than taking a ten billion dollar buyout fund to 16 and then 22 billion it's just easier to compound those smaller numbers moreover when you look at the research that we've done in the space you're really not taking on all that much more risk and so i think you're well compensated for that marginal increase and then on the small side 
you're really hoping to get a 25% gross IRR. And that's where I would say you are taking on a decent amount of risk. But again, I think you're, you're pretty well compensated. In terms of the return profile, one thing to also look at is the cash flow profile. So you're getting nearly half the return from yield and the other half is from appreciation. On the smaller deals, everything just kind of goes up. And so the, the growth potential and the yield goes up just because pricing is a decent amount lower. And so you may be paying single digit next 12 months economic net income in some of these deals on kind of the lower mid market and even into the smaller end. In terms of the returns that we've seen on some of these previous funds, we just aren't there in terms of being able to really judge the performance. Many of the earlier deals and earlier funds were more heavily weighted towards hedge funds. And so I think it's going to take a little bit more time before we can really judge Dial, Petersill, and, and Blackstone on their private capital investments. But so far, we're seeing return expectations kind of line up with the figures that have come out with, with kind of what we expect. And it's, again, kind of those IRRs peak in the beginning, come down, and then kind of gradually, hopefully, will we'll rise to that 20% plus mark as these firms they've invested in continue to do well. So if you go through each of those, on the larger managers, you've established organizations, you can imagine a lot of stability, a large management fee stream, incentive fees can come and go, but they're market sensitive. Pretty easy to understand as kind of some type of cash flow purchase. What does it look like in terms of, let's say, success rates or more likely failure rates? Let's start with that small end of the spectrum and those types of deals. I would say it's tough to tell because especially on the smaller end, there haven't been quite as many deals. I think that's a semi-newer spot. And so there are a few dedicated players in that space. And from what I've seen, the hit rate has been pretty good only because there are so few players. And there's quite a few firms that are really interested in those deals. And so you can either take some of these stakes or you can do, let's say, an accelerator round, which might be closer to a seeding type deal. But I think in general, the hit rate has been pretty attractive. On the mid-market space, I would say it's been like that as well, only because, again, there's just not as many buyers as there are sellers. And so the opportunities, you get to pick through the cream of the crop, at least currently. And then at the top end, honestly, the hit rate is still pretty high. I would say it's a 75% plus hit rate of you're getting at least one and a half to two times your money. And that's the interesting thing about how these deals are set up in general is you're getting a good chunk of those management fees, which are locked in over at least a five-year period. And so in a lot of these deals, the worst case scenario is you buy a stake right as they're closing a fund. Let's say that fund doesn't do well. Typically, private equity firms are able to get at least one more fundraise in. Might not be a large step up, but if you're able to at least get that second fund in after buying a stake, you're pretty much guaranteed to get your money back just off management fees and some of the maybe in-ground carry. And so you know, the return profile, even if it's a failure, it's not terrible, especially when you can compare that to what might happen in a buyout where, you know, return of zero. It sounds like an attractive return profile. When you've seen investors investing in these types of funds that are buying stakes, where do they tend to put them in their asset allocation? That's a great question. And one I'll say there isn't really an answer for, but I've heard everything from some investors looking at it as a type of fee reimbursement. And so you're effectively being paid fees and carry just as you pay out. And so it's that's how at least one or two institutions have thought about it. I've heard it going in the special sits bucket, the credit special sits bucket, growth equity, secondaries, 
Some people just put it in the too hard category and just put it in other. But one of the things that I saw and I thought was maybe my favorite idea was looking at the allocation and then splitting it effectively into the capital that comes in from management fees and then the capital that comes in from carry and or the balance sheet. And so let's say if it was a $100 million allocation, splitting 55 of that into what comes from the management fees and about 45 of that what comes into the balance sheet. And then so the management fees might sit in the credit special sits bucket because you know you can think it's a pretty steady contractually obligated return, whereas the balance sheet aspect and the carried interest is going to be more just broad private equity other bucket. And so I think that was a pretty interesting one. But in general, if you had to place it in one, I think growth equity does make some sense. These are minority stake investments, typically going to be used for some sort of growth action. So you mentioned Dial, now Blue Owl, Peter Sell, and Goldman and Blackstone. Who are the other players in this game if someone was interested in looking maybe in that mid-market or the smaller end of the spectrum? I think the first one probably have to name is Bonacord Capital. So they've done quite a few deals, the most notable of which is Monroe Capital. So it's a about a $10 billion firm and pretty sizable deal. You have to imagine they were competing against Dial, Blackstone, Petersill on that size of a transaction. And another name in the space is Azimut Alternative Capital Partners. So they're part of a larger Milan-based firm. And so they're actually investing some balance sheet capital and then using some of the distribution with these um, asset management network that they have to distribute some of these products, if you will, of the firms they buy in. A few of the other sponsors, Hunter Point Capital, which a lot of questions on what they're going to do and haven't really heard too much about them. We have InvestCorp, we have Ridge Lake, which is an interesting joint venture from RDV Corp, so large family office, and then New York Life. And then the other one in the mid-market would be Stony Rock Capital. So quite a bit. On the smaller end, I think a couple interesting names to look for are Volunteer Park Capital, which is actually here in Seattle. And then Kudu, they do some RIA investments in the private capital space, but there's quite a number of names out there. So I'm going to turn a little bit to the manager's perspective. If these deals coming for investors to have such attractive risk-reward characteristics, why are these savvy investors who are running these management companies doing these transactions? So I would say it's it's a couple things. I think in general, you're looking for some sort of, of partnership. And in a lot of cases, one thing that's really interesting is that these deals don't always go to the highest bidder just because of the value add that some of these teams are able to bring. Now, maybe the second or third highest bidder was still close, but it's not that every dollar effectively is the most important. And so I think there's a huge value add proposition here of similar to the capital constellation model of bringing in several of these large GPs and being able to share the best practice, being able to share strategic LPs, being able to have great advice when it comes to launching a new credit fund or how should you be thinking strategically or how do you retain senior talent. And then I think the other aspect is taking a little bit of chips off the table. I mean, I think that is totally valid. And when some of these founders have created institutions that are worth a billion plus dollars, I don't think it's unreasonable to, especially as you get to the later part of your career, look to monetize on some of what you've made, just because whether you go the Bain model, which is more of that private partnership, or you go some of the models of these other firms, I think it's very reasonable to look for options to monetize. As I've had these conversations recently with a lot of these legendary private equity managers, a lot of them have at some point in time sold a stake. And there does seem to be this question, the founders 
who built this franchise saying, hey, this is our way of cashing out and basically creating a purchase price, certainly in the public companies, to trade out their ownership. What type of dynamics does that create if you look at the big public companies of Carlisle compared to a Bain cap where it's still a private partnership between that founding layer and that next generation of leadership in the organizations? Yeah, I think the interesting thing is that each of those models are totally valid and can work. I think one of the guests you had on recently said it pretty well, which is that typically the next generation of non-founder doesn't quite expect to get compensated to the same level. And I think that's reasonable. And I think also, whether it's the publics where a rather large portion of the outside ownership is shareholders, or whether it's, you know, selling a stake to Dial or whoever, I think they're able to still manage effectively having that outside ownership, as well as being able to try to grow the business. Because typically, the vast majority of their wealth is still going to be in these businesses. And a lot of times, some of these deals can help push equity down further to the next generation. There are options to potentially buy some of that back when there is a succession plan. I think in general, talking to some people in the next generation, some of them find it attractive in that you are partnering with, again, some of these larger GP stakes buyers, and they really see it as someone who's going to help shepherd you to the next wave of growth slash ownership because these are perpetual deals. I mean, when Dial buys in or when any of these large firms buy in, they buy in with the thought that we're going to hold this thing for 20, 30 years, even though maybe it's only underwritten out to 12 or 15. If owners of these businesses are trying to either cash out a little bit or get some kind of liquidity, what are their other options other than just selling a piece of equity in their firm? There's a few other options. I would say it's really on the either pref side or debt. On the pref deal, it's typically going to be a five-year deal where the lender's trying to make one and a half times their capital back. And for some type of growth capital where you don't want to give up equity, that can be an attractive route. And then on the debt side, it's a little bit more difficult. There's not a lot of lenders out there that are doing a lot of underwriting for private equity firms. Dial does have a large fund on that, but I'm not sure how many they've been able to deploy into. And I think on the equity side, a lot of firms look to sell that because you get that partnership aspect that you really don't get with some of these firms that either do pref or potentially debt. Sure, you're giving up a stake in the management company, but hopefully you're getting back more in terms of the upside, not to mention the capital that you get, which in a good amount of the time, at least some of that is rolled into the balance sheets, up the GP commit, or going to help with some sort of expansion and hope that your 80% of the pie 10 years out is worth more than 100%. What are some of the subtleties in the structure of these deals? So in general, these are non-voting minority deals. And because of this, you might find similar rights as you would expect to see in venture or other growth equity rounds. But GP stakes deals often have more robust protections than these standard deal types. Since GP stakes buyers are typically the only outside financing entity, they seek more protections, which I think makes sense. So these deals often come with long-term employment contracts or key persons. One other interesting aspect is the information and management access, which are also included. This can become a sticky point. And one recent case we saw this highlighted was Dial, where it had some lawsuits filed by two portfolio companies, Sixth Street and Golub, to prevent Dial from potentially sharing important and critical information with Alrock, who those firms view as a competitor. So some would argue this whole lawsuit, they were kind of political theater, but it does highlight 
how important the contract and the and the laws and kind of minutia of, of some of these deals are. Finally, I would say there are some economic elements to be aware of, including protections against economic leakage and dilution. Deals will usually contain consent rights regarding non-pro rata distribution of equity, issuance of securities that rank senior to those issued to the stakes buyer, registration rights in the event of an IPO, firm merger, acquisition, divestiture, tag-along sale rights, and on and on. One other element I would say is to know whether these rights transfer to a new owner or whether they have to be renegotiated upon a sale or kind of other monetization option. All of this is to say that these deals are totally bespoke and the legal protections built into each of them is as well. And it's important to have a pretty solid understanding of kind of what's involved in one transaction and maybe how that'll affect things going forward. We've seen in some cases, high deal prices maybe lead to wagering or horse trading between trying to get the buyer to maybe get a few more rights or certain elements within a contract if they're wanting to pay up and and help that GP reach a certain price that they're looking for in terms of selling a stake. What are the differences from the GP's perspective between selling this type of minority stake and going public in terms of their need to satisfy this outside owner? I think there's certainly more pressure to change the business model once you go public. And I think we've seen that with Carlisle. We've seen that with Blackstone, a greater focus on fee-related earnings, on growing the number of strategies. And I think when you sell to some of these GP stakes, you know, the more private equity style owners, and whether it's a strategic, they're more focused on keeping the core business. They typically want to see a lot of carried interest. It's all focused in a different aspect. But I think the underlying thing is that performance is still king no matter what. And so whether it's Blackstone and focusing more on products that have higher fee rates, I think at the end of the day, each of them know that if they stop performing, then this business effectively is going to stop because there's always going to be a manager that's going to be able to deliver some sort of outperformance. And so I think in general, the type of product mix and maybe how the organization is run might be slightly different, whether it's I believe KKR recently made a slight change and is maybe allocating a higher percentage of their management fees to the public shareholders, which public shareholders love because it's it's more predictable and maybe a little bit more of the carried interest, the more variable aspect to the deal makers and employees, which then maybe incentivizes them a little bit more as well. But I think those are small changes around the edge. And at the end of the day, performance is all that matters. So the rub and the big question mark on all of these deals from the allocator community is sort of what happens to the manager after they cash out or conduct one of these transactions, have outside ownership. And I'm curious how it's played out in practice. I would agree with you that especially, let's call it 10 or 15 years ago, there was a broad concern by a lot of LPs about these types of transactions, whether it was now they're no longer going to be incentivized to really continue to grow, manage, and operate this firm, or whether it's they're going to be incentivized to just collect AUM above all else now that they're answering to another shareholder. And I think in general, these GPs, these founders, they're still highly motivated and incentivized to continue to do exactly what they had been doing, which is to grow sustainably this business because it's where the vast majority of their net worth is. We've seen a good amount of LP shift in terms of how they think about these deals. And so for a good amount of time, these deals were looked on 
slightly negatively by a lot of LPs. And I think in talking to a good number of them now, they see it maybe with some sort of indifference. They see the positive, which is that it is effectively this outside buyer has done due diligence on the same manager that you want to have a relationship with for 20 plus years. And they've validated your investment thesis. They might help this firm get to the next generation in terms of succession planning. But also, yeah, totally understand the fact that now that they have an outside shareholder, that that might be something that is less than ideal in some cases. And I think most institutions have changed how they view it, but there's at least one high-profile endowment out there who still has a pretty negative view. How has it played out in practice in terms of the performance of the funds of managers who have sold a stake? So that's the really interesting thing, is that performance of the fund, and, and when we looked at this, we, we looked at private equity, credit, and real estate, and effectively the proportion of top quartile, second quartile, etc. funds is the exact same before and after. I mean, there's a marginal shift. You can chalk that up to data counts just as much as you could chalk it up to actually a notable shift. And the interesting thing that I saw was on the AUM side, I was actually surprised to see that step-ups and AUM growth didn't expand at the same rate that I thought it would. So step-ups actually were the same, if not slightly lower after selling a stake. But what we did see is that there was expansion in terms of the number of strategies. And I think and a lot of times that's kind of to be expected because at least some of the GPs I've talked to recently, you know, it's a mid-market GP who has a two and a half, three, four billion dollar buyout fund. And they're saying, hey, I'd love to come back and raise a smaller mid-market fund or I want to raise a credit fund and I'm looking to sell a stake to X, Y, or Z mid-market GP stakes firm in order to help get to that next step. So as you sorted through all of this, all of these deals that have happened, particularly over the last five or six years, how have the returns looked both in terms of on average and then how wide is the dispersion for purchases of these stakes? So I would say the return on average has been pretty attractive. And it is difficult because a lot of that information isn't out there in terms of purchase price and valuation now. We've run some of our own models and we've seen that in a lot of cases, that, that 15 to 20% that you could expect in buying large firms has actually been even better. And that's no surprise. I mean, if you bought a stake in Vista back seven, eight years ago, you've probably done pretty well. But in general, there's also been the dispersion, as kind of we talked about, in whether it's buying into an energy GP or whether it's buying into a firm where the founders eventually split and go separate ways. There certainly have been some negative, but I would say on the whole, it's been pretty positive somewhere in that 15 to 20. We've seen a number that have probably hit the 30 plus mark, but relatively attractive returns. So when investors own these stakes, whether it's, I guess, through a fund mostly, how do they think about getting out on the back end? That is probably the first thing that LPs ask me every time we discuss how to think about the stake space. And, and I think there's this notion that these are highly illiquid assets, but in reality, it's not quite true. And I would say they are definitely more illiquid than shares of BX or KKR, but there's quite a few options out there when thinking about how to get out. So these assets have pretty steady, high cash flow generation and are relatively predictable. And so when rolled into a portfolio of 8 to 12 stakes, as you might find, there's options for securitizations, there's options for dividend recaps. There's quite a few there that can expedite some of the monetization aspect. Because you know you can go out and refinance some of these at a 5 to 7% cost of capital, and you're putting that against something that's delivering 15, 20, 
percent plus IRRs. And so Dial and Peter Sill have, have both done this, and I think we may see more of that. I would say an interesting route also is just individual sales. And so whether it's that interesting sale that we saw from Dial selling a chunk of their stake in Silver Lake, that's an option or strategic coming in and buying a whole thing. Or we could see entire portfolio sales. And so whether it's going to be Peter Sill 1, where we saw a pretty large portfolio sale to AMG, I think that's an option. You know, I would also jump in and talk about the secondary market. And so whether it's the LP-led secondary market, which from my understanding, there's there's quite a bit of interest around of a lot of LPs just directly buying and trading potentially their ownership in these GP stakes funds. And, and there's been a number of them out there that have taken place, whether it was a $50 million or $500 million stake. And then the other thing is on the GP-led side, a lot of these are not perpetual life funds. I think we're going to get to some point eight, 10 years down the road where these mid-market funds are still holding quite a few high quality assets and they might be rolled into some sort of special purpose or perpetual life vehicle where LPs then get the option to either cash out or kind of roll into that. When you're talking to your clients, what are some of the other dynamics of the stakes buying business that people don't grasp or take in at first glimpse? One thing is the fund structures. And so an interesting thing just to think about is that a lot of these mid-market firms that were out there raising capital have been raising it in typical closed-end funds, but maybe that are only meant to go 10 or 15 years. And so it'll be pretty interesting to see what happens when it comes to liquidity time. Whereas on the top end, Dial, Blackstone, Petersill, they're raising perpetual life vehicles that they can effectively buy a stake in a Silver Lake or whoever and hold that into perpetuity. And so I think it's something that GPs, especially when you're selling, are going to have to think about is this is going into a fund. What's going to happen in 10 years? Now, that doesn't mean you can't have some type of continuation fund or roll it into a special purpose vehicle that becomes perpetual. But it's something I think interesting to think about, especially as there are some strategics targeting that mid-market as well. With more and more of these getting done, how many more can get done? Like, How big is this potential market? That's a question I would say comes up pretty much all the time. And Honestly, just wrapping up some research on that, and the numbers surprised me. So just to kind of give you a frame of reference, if you look at the big six public private firms in the US, so talking Blackstone, Blue Owl, KKR, Apollo, their market cap is somewhere in the $250 billion range. And then when we look at the top end, as we categorize it across credit firms, buyout, et cetera, we think the largest firms out there have equity market cap of somewhere in the 350 billion range. And we think the mid-market is even a little bit bigger at around 400 billion. Now, not every firm in the mid-market is going to sell a stake. And let's say a stake is 20% on average, but we still think there's somewhere in the area of 30 to $40 billion in the mid-market that can be deployed. And at the higher end, we think the number is even bigger, somewhere around 70 billion. And I think the interesting thing about that is not just how large of a number it is, but that this is growing every year. And so every year there are firms that graduate from the middle market into the dial territory. And same can be said, growing from small to mid market. So there's 600 or some firms out there that we categorize across buyout, infrastructure, credit, real estate, et cetera, just in the mid market. I know you've done some work on the other end of the spectrum, which is seeding new funds. And certainly on the hedge fund space, something I was involved with for a long time. And I'm curious what that landscape looks like today. It's more difficult for first-time managers than it's ever been to raise a fund. Just the amount of 
established firms out there, the quality and level that you have to be at to raise a first-time fund is harder now than it's ever been. And we see that in the numbers of just over the last 10, 15 years, the number of first-time funds has continued to come down in terms of overall fundraising. But I also think they have more options now. And so whether it's David Rubenstein talking about how his family office does a lot of work with first-time funds, we see a number of these higher-profile family offices doing quite a bit with first-time funds especially. There are quite a few consultants that have emerging manager programs. You have several sponsors now that are doing some type of seeding deals where they're seeding the actual GP, taking a stake, as well as then investing a good chunk into the fund. And so there's a lot of options out there. What's your sense of what the success rates have been for investors in a seed investment across a number of different funds? Just from the data that we have on that, it's relatively newer, especially on the sponsor side that we're seeing private capital as opposed to hedge funds. I think it's been around in hedge funds for a lot longer. But in looking at some of the firms that have been seeded and the success rate has been relatively high of getting onto that fund two, even up to fund three, decent sized step ups. It's just a lot of work. But I think especially when you're a seeder in private equity, let's say the amount of opportunity that you get to look at. These guys are looking at 40, 50, 60 new managers a year, and they'll maybe see two, three. And so you're able to really pick the best of breed that are coming to you. But I think that's also the other thing that maybe not enough people talk about in the space is that there's always going to be the pedigreed spin out of HIG or wherever that doesn't need seed capital. And so you're picking the best that need you, but there's still, I think, quite a few really high quality managers looking out there for seed. So I can't have you on without talking about another area of interest that you've done some work on, which is the sports industry and private equity, and would love to hear your perspective on what's happening there. So I think what's happening there is maybe similar to what's happening in the stakes area, which is that there's now more liquidity options. And I think we're really seeing the value of bringing in these outside partners, whether it's Dial, who's also jumped into the sports business, or Arctos, or, or some of these other firms that are buying stakes. And I think it's also another area where we need additional buyers to continue to push up the price of some of these franchise valuations. Once you get to five, six, seven billion dollar valuation, it's tough to think that there's going to be any number of Jeff Bezos is they're going to be able to come out there and write that check. I mean, there's only so many. And so I think being able to bring in institutional capital, and whether it's selling a minority stake just to get a little bit of liquidity or to help bring on a strategic partner, and granted, these partners are able to buy into multiple different sports teams. And so the rights that you have and ability to actually affect single teams is absolutely limited. But I think in general, a lot of the leagues have realized that the owners want additional ways to finance these organizations. And I think the other leagues that have not yet allowed it will change pretty quickly once you see what happens with some of these firms that do sell a stake. What are some of the areas in private equity that you have your eye on now? So I think an interesting one is going to be the publicly traded PE firms. I think we've seen Blue Owl, we're seeing Bridgepoint talk about going public. There's rumors that TPG was looking at some sort of SPAC deal or potential IPO. And I think in general, we might see that second wave of private equity manager going public that we saw in the early to late 2000s where Blackstone, KKR, the household names all went public. I think in general, we've seen all those firms get re-rated higher. A lot of these large GPs of, let's call it 50 billion or more in AUM are seeing the attractive valuations that you can get in the public markets. And true, there are additional burdens that come with being public. But a lot of these large firms have figured out ways to seemingly satisfy the shareholder base while also 
satisfying their LPs and continuing to get higher returns. And if you're able to get that healthy valuation in the public markets, I think a lot of the founders are going to say, why wouldn't I do that? From an investor's perspective, how do you think about where to participate? So you have stakes funds, you have managers selling stakes, you have seeding, you have public alternative asset managers. Where do you see people assessing these risk rewards and diving in? So I think it really depends on what they're looking to do. Talking with a lot of large LPs, especially on the stake side, they see it as pretty attractive. So let's say I was talking to a large pension fund that was looking to be a, call it strategic LP in a mid-market fund. And so they were looking to deploy capital across this firm's first two or three funds and then have a special relationship with the GPs that sold a stake into this fund. And so there's going to be, let's say, 10 to 15 mid-market firms and then coming in as a strategic of maybe getting a co-invest in that deal, getting co-invest just in general and additional rights. And so it really depends on what you're trying to do or if you're just trying to have access to broader private equity growth, if you will. I think there's a lot of areas and opportunities, whether it's in the stake side or just buying a basket of publics. So if you look five years out, what do you think the landscape looks like? I think a lot of the large private asset managers are going to sell a stake between here and the next five years. I think it's become very accepted broadly. And I think we're going to see some sort of transition in terms of succession plan for a lot of these founders. And I also think we're going to see a good chunk go public. I truly believe that after EQT, if Bridgepoint does, Blue Owl, I think the landscape is truly changing. And I think that's going to be reflected in about five years. All right, Wiley, while I have you, I had a chance to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So I would say it's travel and subsequently eating. So anytime I'm abroad, love to just go out and eat and meet the people and, and just have a nice time. And if I can walk around and not hear a word of English being spoken, that's I know I'm in my happy place. <laughs> and why is that? It's just so nice to get out of the norm and be exposed to new cultures, meet new people. And Japan was the first place I, I really traveled that sparked my love of traveling. And I can't say enough about the people, the culture, the food. I mean, everything was just incredible. What's your most important daily habit? I mean, the real answer here is probably drinking a cup of coffee because my brain doesn't work without it. But I would say, especially in the pandemic, exercise in the middle of the day has been a huge thing that has changed the way I work. And so I think it really recharges me and makes it a whole lot easier to work two six-hour days than a full 12. So exercise. What two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? There's two folks at PitchBook that have had pretty massive impacts on my life. I would say the first is going to be James Gelfer, who was a manager of mine and recently returned to Goldman Sachs where he was. And he's actually the reason I even started looking into the stakes business. So I had been doing some research on several different areas within private equity. And you mentioned this might be something that you find interesting and jumped on that and went from there. But James is always someone who pushed me to do better, to be better. And you know, I consider him a personal friend as, as well as someone who really pushed me to be better professionally. And then the other person I would say is Zane Carmine. He's someone who you'll see on a lot of the research reports that I've done, whether it's on stakes or, or other things. And he's just an incredibly smart, talented person who I wouldn't have been able to do any of the work I've done without him. And so those two have really changed, I would say, the trajectory of my whole career. Great. Last one, Wiley. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Life is not a straight line. 
a lot of people, and I would say myself included, come out of college thinking, this is where I want to be one day. These are the exact steps I need to take to get there. And let me tell you, that is not how my life has gone so far. And I think not only is that okay, but it is great and leads to better outcomes. And so whether it's having a mindset that allows you to make certain connections from working in other industries or having some sort of cognitive diversity down the line, I think it actually makes for better decision-making and a stronger team. And there's two books out there, I would say Range and The Diversity Bonus, that talk a little bit about certain aspects of this and where you think you're going to be in 20 years when you're coming out of college or just in general. It doesn't happen, and that's okay. Sounds great. Wiley, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Ted. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 